about this carefully. Take a deep breath. Don't be alarmed at the question, but think about this soberly and carefully before you answer. All right, are you ready? Are you afraid? Now, I know a lot of you are thinking, well, what in the world is that all about? What do you mean, am I afraid? I'm listening to this. I'm not afraid. Well, okay, that's fine. I'm, I'm not looking for a certain answer. I want you to think about it for your own benefit. So think again, are you afraid? All right, you've had time to get an answer. And let me pose that a little differently, because maybe this will help you think about it. Take another breath. Don't be alarmed by the question, but here it is a little differently. Are you anxious? Yeah, are you anxious? You know, some people have a little anxiety of what I've sometimes described as a little free-floating anxiety, almost kind of anxiety waiting to land on a reason. I don't know if that's a good way to describe it, but I've met some people that I thought had that dynamic going on. So my question is straightforward for you. Are you afraid? Are you anxious? And don't be too quick to answer because you think you're supposed to answer a certain way. Just be honest. I'm not there to challenge you. It's really between you and God, and he knows already. So it's, it's okay to be honest, really. Uh, God can handle it. Uh, I guess the question is, can we? So are you afraid? Are you anxious? Or maybe this will help. I don't, I don't know for sure, but maybe we should think about what scares you. What scares you? Sometimes people are afraid of the dark, you know? Uh, uh, okay, I, I guess we understand that. Or, or they're afraid of spiders. Well, okay, there's a certain amount of trepidation or fear related to those creepy crawly critters. But maybe think a little deeper than that. What scares you? Uh, or along the same lines, what are you afraid of? If such and such should happen, is that something you're afraid of? Or or do you kind of dread? You know, that's a, that's a really important thing for us to think about. And here on Faith Is, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and we're going to talk about this idea of fear. Now, here we say faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And of course, if we have that kind of confidence in God, then we won't be afraid. We won't be anxious. And I'm not here to make you feel like you're less than something or to make you ashamed because you would have to honestly say, I'm afraid or I'm anxious or I have these fears that kind of pop up from time to time or I'm afraid that if this happened, it would really mess up my life or I'm afraid for my children or grandchildren. I'm not trying to, to get us to a, a state of, Oh my, oh dear, oh, what am I going to do? No, I want to help us understand and unpack our responses to this idea of fear so that we can handle it better. And so we can have less fear and less anxiety in our lives. Because if faith is, and I think it is, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, then as we have that kind of faith, we won't be afraid. So let's plunge in a little bit. All right. Are you ready? 
Are you afraid to even consider this? Well, some people might be. I hope you aren't, because the whole point of this and these programs that we share together is to help us stretch in God's direction. It's to help us cultivate that kind of faith. It's to help us grow in God's direction. It's to help us stretch to God's high calling. It's not to make us feel bad because we aren't a certain place. It's to help us take that step in God's direction because he, among other things, he does not want us to live in fear. He does not want us to live in a state of chronic anxiety. So let's make sure we understand what we're talking about a little bit here. I don't want to, to confuse anybody, and I don't want to um, have you focusing on something that, that isn't what I'm talking about. So let's understand that we use the word fear in a, in a variety of ways. It's not just a one word, one sort of concept idea. Fear crops up in different kinds of things. And we'll say we're afraid of spiders, for example. And that's a little different than a, a fear of, of some real catastrophe happening. Here in Florida, somebody might say they're afraid of a hurricane coming. Well, that's different than being afraid of a spider, I think. Um, so let's, let's just kind of understand that, that fear is often defined in the context in which we use it. So let's not exaggerate in one direction or another. Let's carefully understand what we need to talk about and what God is saying to us when he talks to us about fear. So first of all, I think we should recognize that, that God has created us, it seems obvious, with this fight or flight sense of fear. You may have heard that before. Something will startle us, and we realize we got to do something to, to ward off this impending problem or change course, or maybe we're in traffic and somebody stops suddenly and, whoa, the fear springs up and we know we better slam on the brakes. Maybe we get in a situation, uh, I hope you would never get in a situation where you have to defend yourself or someone else. In other words, you have to resist that attack on, on your kids or someone you care about. The fight or flight response, that seems to be by all accounts, something that God has created in us so that we will respond appropriately to situations that, that threaten us, that we need to have a quick, decisive response. And we've probably been in those, and you can probably think of some of those. On the other hand, we often use the term fear to speak of that which is chronic. We have, might have chronic fear, or I like to connect with that just so we don't play games with ourselves we might have chronic anxiety. And I mentioned the kind of free-floating anxiety that people have. And, and you've probably met someone like this. I hope you aren't this way. But if, if you are, this, this is for you. This idea is for you. If, if you have this kind of chronic free-floating anxiety or fear, or some people say it's worry, and that's a, that's a cousin to the whole idea we're talking about, let's, let's be honest. Uh, and you've known some people that have the tendency to worry if they don't have something to worry about. I remember hearing my mother talk about someone that way many years ago when I was a child, hardly knew what that was about, but I never forgot how odd it would be for someone to worry if they didn't have something to worry about. Well, uh, you and I probably met people that way. And, and I have to admit that I've met some people that, that I believe were caught in this trap of chronic fear, anxiety, worry. Well, that's really 
a lot of what we want to focus on is this, this tendency for some people, this tendency for us, given certain circumstances, to live in this chronic, kind of chronic fear. And we want to make sure that, uh, that we, don't, we don't dwell there. You've probably heard and you probably agreed that the Bible says over and over and so many times it's the most common command in all of the Bible that God says, fear not, or don't be afraid, something along those lines that God just says, don't be afraid. Well, he's not talking about the flight or fight idea. He's talking about this chronic worry or fear or anxiety, it, this kind of stuff that, that eats away at our well-being in so many ways and on so many levels. So when God says fear or not, that's what he's talking about, and that's what we want to help each other with. That's what we want to help ourselves with. And I want to use a recently released book whose title really caught my attention. I, I'm a lover of books, and I have way more books than I should have, and I've probably spent a lot more money than I should have on books, but it's just part of how God made me. But Michael Horton has written a book that just came out, I think, two weeks ago, entitled Recovering Our Sanity, How the Fear of God Conquers the Fears That Divide Us. Recovering Our Sanity, How the Fear of God Conquers the Fears That Divide Us. Well, that got my attention because for a long time, I, I don't, don't know how long exactly, at least as long as we've been through this virus uh, crisis or or whatever you want to call it, pandemic, people are calling it different things now, but whatever you want to call it, it ushered in a season of fear that I have never seen before in my life. I don't ever remember people being afraid like they've been afraid during this virus um, conversation or concern. And so I, I started asking myself, what's going on here? And, and the thing that really concerned me, I, I'll be perfectly honest, the thing that really concerned me was how many of God's people were giving into the fear that was going around. They were collapsing into the fear. They were buying into the fear. They were caught up in the fear. And I kept thinking to myself, hold on. We who are followers of Jesus, we who have faith or absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, why are we so afraid? I understand people who don't have that faith, who haven't discovered the opportunity to be God's covenant partner. But what about us? Why are we so afraid? Why is the church responding out of fear in, in so many places instead of out of confidence that, hey, this is a crisis time. We are the people of God. God has called us as the church to step up, not step back, not cower in fear. Yes, we can be cautious, but we will not give in to fear, and we will not be afraid because we know the one who knows all about this virus, and if we don't know about it, he does, and we trust him, and we're going to follow him. See, that's, that's the response I didn't see enough of, and so it really got my attention about what's going on with this business of fear, and so that's why, that's why this book got my attention, this book by Michael Horton, and so I want to talk about some of the ideas in the book, really the forward in chapter one, and we may explore some of the other ideas on future programs. We'll see about that. But I think this, this problem of fear is so pervasive that we need to address it, and we need to really think about it, and we need to overcome it. Now, I've said to, to my church here, there's really no benefit to fear. 
you know, we, we get afraid and it's, and it's so contagious. The fear is more contagious than the virus from my point of view. And we get so afraid and it's ripples through a group of people. And, and we need to, as the people of God, we need to come to grips with this and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Shouldn't we see things differently? Shouldn't we behave differently? Shouldn't we put fear in its place? Shouldn't we put God in his place so that fear does not replace God? And, and there's a lot of ways you could frame that. And I don't mean to be overly, uh, how should I say, descriptive of that or overly judgmental of how you might have handled that. But I do want to be very pointed and say, we have got to address this problem of fear that has sprung up among us. And we have to solve it because we cannot be what God wants us to be. And we cannot do what God wants us to do if we respond in fear to all the things around us. So let's tackle some of these ideas from Michael Horton's book. And I want to begin with the foreword who was written by a man named Russell Moore. It's really quite interesting forward. If you get the book, and I encourage you to get the book, it's a little bit challenging to read. And there are some, and we'll talk about this, some things that, that I think weaken the book, but there are some strong statements in here. And that's what I want to focus on. And Russell Moore wrote the foreword for this. And, and he said, and I quote, we suppress what our conscience knows that we will stand before a living God to whom we must give an account because we psychically hide from that judgment seat. We find ourselves consumed with all the little judgment seats we see all around us, whether they are represented by people we know or by anonymous masses on social media. Now, I thought that was, that's the end of the quote. I thought that was a very interesting perspective, he says, that we, we find ourselves in a peculiar place because we are suppressing the idea that we will stand before God one day and give an account. And the Bible's clear about that. Everybody will give an account. So we will stand before God one day, but we, we hide from that. We just push that idea down. We, we live, maybe we could say a little bit in denial. He didn't use that word, but we could think that way. And so we hide from that idea and because we hide from that idea, Russell Moore suggests that we get caught up in a lot of little fears, little judgment seats, as the way he describes it, all around us. And so we live in fear of those things rather than in an appropriate fear of standing before a living God and what that means. And I think he's onto something there. And I think we need to think about that. What if we concentrated on that side of the fear? that we have a fear of God and of standing before him. And by that, I mean an awe and a reverence for God. What if we began to replace all of this chronic fear people are feeling with an awe and reverence for God that, that bows before him and recognizes that one day we will stand before him. And so we don't have to give in to these other fears. So what about all the rest? If I'm rightly related to God, he's got my back and I don't have to worry. I don't have to be afraid. So I think that's a very important aspect of all of this. Now, Russell Moore says some other things that I found very interesting in this, in this forward. And I want to read another rather long section of that to help us kind of grasp this idea of how we can drive out some of these fears in light of an appropriate awe and reverence for God. So he writes, and I quote, we drive out the fear of others, the fear of the future, 
and even the fear of death itself with the fear of God. As this book explains, this fear is not the trembling of demons before one who will condemn them, but an altogether transformed sort of fear, the awe and reverence of a holy God who loves us and who sent his son to the place of the skull in order to put us and the universe itself right with him. This means that we reorient our lives around a cross that shows us a God who both judges sin and justifies sinners. That fear is grounded not in anxiety and shame, but in the freedom that comes from the hearing of good news." End of quote. Now, in a, in a very short number of words, Russell Moore captures the idea that we need to wrestle with, that we need to reorient our lives around a cross that demonstrates before all heaven and earth that God judges sin and justifies sinners. The cross was the demonstration that God would deal and did deal decisively with sin. When the Bible tells us that Jesus became sin for us, he dealt decisively with the problem of sin and provided justification for sinners. Uh, by the way, that's us. Some people don't like that description, but that is what the Bible calls us. Until we find ourselves forgiven by a holy God, that's who we are. And sometimes we'll say we're sinners saved by grace. Well, heavy on the grace for me, that's for sure. So he talks about how then the fear of God, the awe and reverence of God is, is not about our anxieties about things or not about our shame for the things we wish we hadn't done, but it's the freedom that comes from hearing Jesus say, welcome, I'm welcoming you into my tribe. I'm wanting you to be one of my disciples. I welcome you to be a follower of mine. I forgive you. I've taken care of that sin. Please accept my gift of life and life as it was meant to live, meant to be lived. So that's the idea that Russell Moore is talking about in this little quote here. And I think he's exactly right. He, he says we need to, uh, later in this forward, he talks about how we need to, to make adoration of God our focus so that we don't get caught up in fear. And I think he's exactly right. When we focus on God, when we honor God, when we worship God, we don't need to be afraid and fear flees. So it's, this book, he says, is meant to shake us out of those fears because we don't, we don't need to live there. And indeed, I, I don't believe we were created to live there. We're not created to live in fear like this, not at all. And then he says something, and, and one more quote from his preface that's really, really good. Quote, we learn to quell our fears, not by reassuring ourselves that there is nothing in the darkness, but by coming to the light that shines in the darkness and has overcome it. And of course, that's a reference to 1 John 1, 5, that the light of the world has come to overcome the darkness. And, and isn't that exactly what we need to think about? We don't just remind ourselves there's nothing in the dark to worry about. No, we come to the one who is the light of the world and whose light shines in that darkness and overcomes it. And so when the light shines in the darkness, we can see what we couldn't see, and we are no longer afraid. Isn't that good news? Isn't that the right perspective? Well, I, I hope you can begin to grasp that and to, um, and to benefit from that, because that's just really such a huge thing. 
And as Michael Horton says in chapter one, we were not designed to live in a perpetual state of emergency. And, and really, don't you think that's what's been going on? First, it's one thing, then it's another thing. And, and that's one reason, and he doesn't say this, but I say this, that's one reason I encourage people just to turn off the television, turn off all of that news that comes at us with the 24-hour news cycle, because you and I know that what they do is they report things to stir us up and to make us anxious, afraid, worried, responding with, oh my, what's going to happen? And so we need to, to take control of our lives because we were not designed to live in that perpetual state of emergency. We just can't do that. An example of that might be when you've found yourselves caring for a loved one, a sick child, or, or someone in your family. And there was a certain amount of anxiety about that because they were very sick and you didn't know how it was going to turn out. And you find, found yourself just really worn out by that. And it wasn't just the, the effort to care for them, but it was the concern that went along with that. And sometimes seasons of life bring that. I'm not convinced that we have to give in to the state of emergency in every situation like that. But as an example, I think you understand what I'm talking about. And, and part of what happens as a result of that is we get tired, not so much from the physical exertion, but from the weight of concern on our minds. And that's a good illustration for us to remember that we weren't created to live in that, as Michael Horton describes it, perpetual state of emergency. That, that's a very important clue to getting this right, don't you think? And we need to not live in that perpetual state of emergency. Now, so far, I like this book a lot, and I think it's been very helpful because what he's doing is he's applying biblical principles, biblical truth to this problem of fear. But I also want to be honest with you that there are some things in this first chapter that I thought were just weak. He, he has a section, well, you could say three sections on, on three fears that he describes. Number one, our longing for life. Number two, our daily bread. And number three, fearing each other. I thought those sections were particularly weak. There were some, some helpful statements he made in them, but I just didn't think that he, he made the case very well. And I, I felt like he was reaching to try to, to convince us of something that really uh, it, it wasn't connecting with me. So when you read things like this, it doesn't mean you have to throw out everything that is in the book or that every idea that an author has, but sometimes things just don't connect with us. And this, this just didn't. Yes, I understand when he says, number one, we all long for life because we don't want to die. And so we make sure that we watch out for ourselves. We don't put ourselves in dangerous places. We drive cautiously, well, most of us. And, and so we try to avoid the things that would hurt us or potentially end our lives. It's true. We care about our daily bread. I mean, the Lord's Prayer says something about our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. So we, we are a little bit convinced that we need to eat regularly. We may not need to eat as much and as regularly as we do sometimes, but, oh, well, that's another issue, isn't it? So let's not go down that road. But, but we do have a concern for, for nutrition and for surviving. We can't go that long without food and water. The, um, the section on fearing each other, I thought was a little bit really out there because I don't find in my experience, people afraid of each other. And he kind of paints a picture of, of people being afraid of each other. And, and, and there may be some people that way, 
I just don't find that in my life experience that people are, are walking around afraid of each other. They uh, tend to be good hearted and good natured and, and easy to get along with. And people I meet that I don't know seem to be the same way. And I have not found a whole lot of this idea of people being afraid of each other. Now, in terms of the virus, I think that has developed a little bit. And I'm fortunate to live in Florida, in Florida here, pardon me. And we haven't had the, the strict uh, restrictions. We have tended to, to roll with the, with the ups and downs of things. And, and we have just gone about our lives. And people here don't tend to be afraid like that. Uh, in this state, I have not encountered someone who, who pushed me away or spoke to me in a way to indicate they were afraid of me because maybe I was contagious when I traveled a little bit last year, I did come across some of that in other places. And I was really struck by that because I thought that was really unnecessary. So these sections are a little on the weaker side in my judgment, but he did make one statement that I think is very helpful and, and I think very applicable to it for us to think about. So here's the question he posed. What do we need or think we need so much that we would be unable to go without it? That's a very good question, a very important question. What do we need or think we need so much that we would be unable to go on without it? Now, probably at different seasons of our lives, we thought about different things that we didn't want to have to go without and do without. And I, I get that. But, you know, people spend a lot of time in anxiety over the, oh, dear, what if that happens? How would I go on? And I do not know of a single thing I have ever known anyone to think they needed that they couldn't manage without or get through. Over and over as a pastor, I've seen plenty of people go through circumstances and situations that none of us wanted them to go through, none of us wanted to go through with them. It's the stuff of life, sadly. And even though it was a terrible thing, the loss of a loved one, perhaps, even though it was a devastating situation, and many of us have been there, we have been amazed at how God gives us grace for those days. And when we can't imagine going on, when we can't imagine doing without a loss of a job or, or a friendship, or you fill in the blank for your situation, we have discovered that when we trust God, he provides for us in ways we never could have imagined. And I have been, frankly, amazed again and again, how God redeems some of these terrible situations in our lives, and he brings healing and wholeness to us. And when I see that, I remember, I haven't always been this way, I've learned this over time, but I remember that I don't have to be anxious about this because God has been with me before and he's not going to fail me in the future. I don't want something bad to happen. I don't want something bad to happen to you or to your family or anybody you know. But I know how life is and I'm realistic enough to know that, that things are going to happen that I don't want to have to deal with. But when that happens, I remind myself and I will remind myself that God has not failed me and I can trust him and I'm going to trust him. Doesn't make the circumstance easy, but it sure helps when I can look at God and say, thank you for being my covenant partner. Thank you for having my back when the world around me seems to collapse, or maybe it's just my world. But I want to know how, I want to know that confidence 
that comes from recognizing that now so that when I get in a crisis, I can call on it then. And I want that for you too. You see, it also keeps us from being exploited. And that's one of the things he mentions in here. And in one sentence, I think he says so much. And I, I think it helped me so much. Maybe it'll help you too. But Michael Horton says, fear is such a powerful drug that it is easily exploited. Let me say that again. Fear is such a powerful drug that it is easily exploited. And looking back, can't we agree that, that in too many situations, people have exploited our fears during this last couple of years? They have used our fears against us. And, and frankly, I, I just, that really makes me angry. I, I think in a right sense, I'm not angry at any person. I'm angry at the way fear has been used to exploit people like you. I'm angry for what that's done to people who get anxious and afraid all too easily. I'm, I'm angry that people manipulate each other with this nonsense of being afraid. And nonsense of being afraid, I mean, by that I mean that we don't have confidence in God and we allow the fear to dilute or to negate our confidence in God neutralize our confidence in God. We don't want to go down that route and down that road because fear is not a good thing for us over the long haul. And we do not need to be, we do not want to be afraid because there is a God in heaven who cares about people. And he wants us to have absolute confidence in him so that we do not find ourselves trapped in our own fears or manipulated by the fears of other people but we can stand resolute and confident and say, come what may, even if it's death itself, I have confidence in God and death is no problem for God. For one day I will stand before him and I will live forever with him. Now you think about that while we take a break here in just a minute. And I'm gonna come back and we're gonna talk about some more about fear and don't go away because I wanna help you with this. So talk to you soon. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report. Are you tired of your tired vitamins? Consider Healthy Cell. These are pill-free vitamins that are in convenient gel packs. Uh, I like the Focus and Recall supplement. I use this a lot. You know, your brain uses a lot of energy and it depends on a variety of micronutrients and vitamins. Boost your short-term focus and long-term brain power with Healthy Cell's Focus and Recall vitamins. So go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, for a 20% off your first order of any Healthy Cell product. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only 8 seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. 
Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. It's time to rethink COVID disinfection. A study by Harvard, Drexel, and Virginia Tech concluded, we don't have a single documented case of COVID transmission through surfaces. The reality is that COVID spreads mainly through the air. Shared air is the problem, not shared surfaces. The solution is the Genesis Fogger, which uses natural HOCL to disinfect both air and surfaces simultaneously. It's perfect for home or business. NIH says HOCL may well be the disinfectant of choice for coronaviruses. There's nothing more natural or more effective. Genesis fogs at the precise particle size to combat COVID and other harmful pathogens. It's what's missing from your disinfecting protocol. Visit genesisfogger.com. America Out Loud listeners receive a 15% discount with promo code OUTLOUD at genesisfogger.com slash OUTLOUD. All right, here we are. We're back and ready to go. We're tackling this question of fear. I hope you're not afraid to continue because what I find with talking about this and, and processing this with the, the people I care about, it's, it's just really helpful. And, and we help each other not be afraid. Now, one of the ways that we're doing that is, is we have a Wednesday evening discussion group. We read books and we talk about them. And boy, do we get into some deep questions. And we decided to, to tackle Michael Horton's book, Recovering Our Sanity, How the Fear of God Divides, Conquers the Fears That Divide Us. And we, we just barely started on that, but it's been a robust discussion so far. And, and I think we're challenging each other and helping each other not be afraid. And for our church, that's a that's an important theme these days, is we're not going to be afraid. And and I guess one of the reasons that I'm doing this is because I think we do this because our church wants to help you and help you in whatever way we can. And we hope this helps you not be afraid. Because as I said a few minutes ago, it greatly concerns me that the people of God are acting out of fear instead of confidence in God. And we need, to, we need to stop that, and we need to have a, a better perspective about that. And Michael Horton's book is helping us with that. And so I want to talk our, my way through the rest of this chapter with you to help you have some more ideas that, of what he's talking about to help us really get a grasp of what's, what he's talking about and, and how, it can, how it can help us. And one of the reasons that we, as the people of God, need to to act like the people of God is because that's how we influence people around us. You know, the world around us is, is shaped by its beliefs. And we sometimes look at the things that pop out to us in, in the news or in the culture, or sometimes people talk about the things that happen in politics and, and they think, oh dear, politics is terrible or the culture is terrible. But really, isn't that just the symptom of the deeply held beliefs of too many people? Isn't that just the evidence that people have gone astray and have forgotten that which is right and true and just? And isn't it time for the people of God to live rightly so that we can have a testimony of, of there's a better way? Because there is a God in heaven who cares about us, and he hasn't abandoned us, he won't abandon us, and it doesn't matter what happens, we're going to be okay because we trust in him. And Michael Horton captures that idea in one sentence, 
and I, and I think it's so important for our times. Let me just read it to you. I quote, one of the reasons for the success of Christian evangelization of Romans was the radically different ethic that was practiced by believers, not just preached. End of quote. In other words, they lived their faith in a way that, that demonstrated there was something different to believe in, something solid to hold on to, someone to trust in a world of craziness and a world of, of sin and power and slavery and all of the things that go with that. And we see the same things today. And we, as the people of God, need to live differently. And so we need to be able to say to the fear mongers out there, no, we're not going to be afraid and we're not going to live our lives based on fear or your exploitation of that fear, because we're not going to be exploited. We're going to trust God. And that's the answer to the problems of our time is for those of us who are followers of Jesus to live our lives differently. And if there's one thing that I can encourage you to, to stretch toward is this idea of confidence in God. So you aren't afraid. We don't need to be afraid. Let's not be afraid. And he goes on to, to challenge us again. He says, uh, the extent to which we have lost the fear of God will increase our fear of everyone and everything else. Now, that's a strong statement. That's the end of the quote. If, if we lose our fear of God, then we become more afraid of everyone and everything else. And so he is really saying to us that we need to get back to this awe and reverence of God so that we put him first and we understand how we relate to him so these other things become not fearful, not something to be afraid of. We can put those fears, we could say, in their place because we put God in his place. He goes on with that same idea, I quote again, if someone buys the worldview that says that the chief end of human existence is personal peace, prosperity, and security, this demand for satisfying immediate felt needs will override whatever scruples one might have against abortion, divorce, abuse, or racism, or just about anything else. End of quote. So there he puts it pretty plainly. If we're so concerned about our own well-being, our own peace and prosperity and security, then we will tend to compromise in all kinds of ways, and that will lead us down a path that will lead us to destruction. And we need to make sure we re-enthrone God and, and we re-establish the appropriate awe and reverence for God. That becomes the antidote for this problem of being afraid. He goes on. God does not exist for my happiness, but I exist for his glory. And when I am glorifying God, I am also enjoying him. Worshiping God is the flourishing of ourselves and those around us. So it is only in communion with him that I find genuine satisfaction, which can weather unhappy circumstances. I don't naturally know this because I'm a sinner. Rather, I have to be confronted with God in his holiness and majesty, accept that I am the problem, and then flee to his mercy in his son. And then he unites us also to each other as members of his body, gifts instead of threats. That is what Christians should be saying. And he goes on to finish this up by saying, maybe I'm living on an island, but I just don't hear enough of this. End of quote. And he's exactly right. 
exactly right. God does not exist to make me happy. He is, just doesn't. I exist to honor him. I exist to, to glorify him. And when I do that, then that leads me to flourishing. Now, some people say that's rather bizarre or at the very least counterintuitive, but we were created by God who wants us to honor him, to love him. What's the, what's the great commandment say? Love God with all you got and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's what we were created to do. And when we do that, then we flourish and we're confronted with the reality of God and we don't get distracted or I think distracted might be too mild a word. We don't get caught up in all this fear nonsense. And we don't need to live in chronic fear or as Horton says, in this perpetual state of emergency. We need to trust in God. And, and that's, that idea is also behind his, his title a little bit when he says recovering our sanity. Because really, when we live in chronic fear, we can't think straight. That doesn't mean you're insane. Don't hear me saying that. But it does mean that we aren't rightly related to God. And so we don't think right and we don't behave right. We're caught up in things that will guide us, drive us even in the wrong direction. So we need to make sure that we, we deal with that appropriately so that we don't, uh, yeah, we don't find ourselves in a trap that we don't want to be in, in a, in a place that would just be destructive to us. And, and he puts it pretty plainly in, in one place in this first chapter. He says his thesis is this, quote, the fear of God drives out the fear of everything else end of quote. Maybe I should read that again. The quote is this, the fear of God drives out the fear of everything else, end of quote. And that's really at the heart of what he's talking about. And the more I've thought about that, the more I appreciate what he's saying. Because if I have reverence for God, if I live in awe of God, then that affects everything in my life. And when I have confidence in God that comes from reverencing him and living in awe of him, from knowing that he is God and I'm not, from knowing that he can handle everything uh, and anything because he's God, and knowing that I can trust him as my covenant partner, then all these other things fall into place. And I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid for tomorrow. I don't have to be afraid for the next day. I don't have to be afraid for my children or my grandchildren or my friends or anything else. I can trust God when I live in the appropriate awe and reverence of him. And I think that's a very, very significant place for us to live. Very significant. We must not overlook that. And he alludes in one point in here to this idea, and I mentioned earlier, of restoring or recovering our sanity. He alludes to the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. And you may be familiar with that story. And, and in Daniel 4, we, we discover that Nebuchadnezzar, we would say, lost his mind. We don't know exactly what happened to him, but he was driven out from human company and he lived like an animal. And one time, after a period of time, he did recover his sanity and was restored back to his former life. Well, I, in a real sense, what Michael Horton is arguing for is that we need to get over this fear stuff so that we can be restored back to the life that God intended for us to live. My hope is that it's better than before with these last couple of years of fear. 
I think what these these last couple of years have done for us is surface some of these things, and God now wants to help us deal with them so that our lives are better. Okay, so we made a mistake and we lived in fear. We bring that to God and say, God, I want you to help me with this because I want to have absolute confidence in your trustworthiness. I want to reverence you. I want to live in awe of you. I don't want to be afraid of all the things around here. If there's anyone I want to be afraid of, I want to live in the fear that you taught me to have toward you. And that's the appropriate approach to, to overcoming this season that we've been in of, of, of fear and concern. And just as Nebuchadnezzar had his sanity restored when he put God in God's proper place, yes, you can too. We all can. When we put God in his proper place, we can have our sanity restored. Doesn't that sound like good news to you? Doesn't it sound like good news that, that we don't have to live in a state of emergency? We don't have to live in chronic fear. We don't have to be anxious about everything. We can actually believe God when he tells us over and over, be anxious for nothing. Isn't that, doesn't that sound good to you? Wouldn't you like to be there? Well, the good news is you can be. And the, and the antidote is not just to put fear aside. I think you can do that too. But Michael Horton suggests the real antidote is to elevate God and have the appropriate awe and reverence for him put him in his rightful place in our lives, instead of thinking we have to run everything, lest it all fall apart, and all of our fears become realities. Well, we can trust God, and we need to. And he says uh, another place in this same chapter, he says, they lost the fear of their maker, and all sorts of wrong fears rushed in. That's the end of the quote, very short quote, they lost the fear of their maker, and all sorts of wrong fears rushed in. And to a large degree, I think that's what describes our times. We have seen people turn from God and, and not be afraid. It's in little ways and in bigger ways. I grew up a lot of years ago in a time when, when there was a common sense that we should set Sunday aside as the Lord's Day and not go chasing around to the store or not go chasing around here and chasing around there. It was God's day for worship and for restoration, for rest. I can remember that in the little town where I lived, or actually I lived out of the town, I didn't live in the town, but they had uh, two or three pharmacies, and they would take turns being open for a limited number of hours on Sunday because they knew someone might need medicine desperately. Maybe a child would develop an ear infection, and they need that right away. So they took turns and they weren't open all day and people didn't go traipsing in there doing their weekly shopping. People would go to the pharmacy because they needed something because it was a genuine human need and out of respect for, for the needs of people and in response to God's expectations of us, they would take turns being open so they could meet human need, but they weren't open as for business as usual. That was left for six days. Well, see, we lost our awe and reverence that God knew what he was talking about and gave us that day off, so to speak. Well, now do you really think we are less anxious and driven because we have seven days where people are chasing around everywhere and doing everything and where far too many people treat Sunday as the makeup day for all the things they didn't get done earlier in the week? Well, we've lost our awe and reverence of God when we treat Sunday just like any other day. And it's time for us to recapture that. It's time for us to, 
to start practicing what God encourages us to practice and put him in his proper place with awe and reverence. And then we don't have to be afraid of things. We don't have to be driven by that stuff. We can just put those things aside. That's really, really the point. That's really the idea of his, of his um, book and of, especially of this first chapter. So he sum, sums up the chapter in a final paragraph and he, and he writes this. I want to help us shift our whole focus from a human-centered obsession with saving ourselves through false securities and promises of immediate gratification to the solid joys and lasting treasure that none but Zion's children know. From that perspective, we can be joyful even when we are unhappy, hopeful even when the hype fails us, and persevering and growing even in and through fearful trials. And he's right. That's the end of the quote. Sorry, I didn't say that, but he's right. If we get ourselves out of the center of our lives, and if we put Christ where he belongs, and if we live our lives in awe and reverence of him, then things fall into the right perspective and into the right place. And we don't depend on false things to make our security. We don't depend on instant gratification to live our lives. Uh, some of us know what this is like, and it's a pretty small, and some of you will say silly idea, but I've noticed a number of times I'll be in a store for one reason or another. Maybe I needed something or I, I don't, you know, I can't really remember the specifics, but, but all of a sudden the idea occurs to me, you know, there's nothing in this whole big store that I can't live without. And I have found, surprisingly, a, a sense of satisfaction in that, that there's nothing here that I can't live without. And that helps me. And it reminds me that I need to have the right perspective on life and how it's meant to be lived so that I don't get caught up in this stuff that so easily trips people up and so easily sidetracks us so that we find ourselves in a place we never wanted to be, wondering how we got there, and desperate, desperate to make a better life for ourselves. And the answer is simply in following what the Bible tells us, and putting Christ in a place of awe and reverence in our lives, and then living in response to that. If we reverence him, we will keep his commandments. The Bible says if we love him, we will keep his commandments. Same, same idea. And we need to we need to do that. In a summary statement, Michael Horton says in this first part of the book, the antidote to our fears is the fear of God. And so I want you to think about that. I want you to think about how you can practice the antidote to your fears. I want you to think about how you can practice this idea that you can trust God no matter what. I want you to think about what that looks like in your life to actually practice a life that is so focused on awe and reverence of God that you don't get caught up in these things, you don't get distracted by them, you don't give in to the fears that so many people do, the fears that are all around us. Because we can live differently, we can live better, and we can have better lives when we aren't afraid. You know, you can trust God with your concerns for your family and friends. You can trust God with your concerns about the security of your job. You can trust God when it comes to your children, grandchildren, you can trust God because he loves them the same as he loves you. And I find it very helpful for myself to remind myself when I get concerned just to, 
to say to God, thank you that you love them. You are more concerned about this situation than I am. And you're on top of it from the beginning. You knew about it before I did. And I can trust you to handle it. Such an, such an improved perspective, such a helpful idea so that I don't have to get caught up in all of the stuff that makes people afraid. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time. And I want us to go to a to a verse in the Bible. We've re referenced a number of biblical principles all the way through here, but I want to kind of wrap things up with a reminder from the book of Proverbs. Now, you probably think of the book of Proverbs, as most of us do, as a book of wisdom. And sure enough, it tells us a lot of good things about how to live our lives. And in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, very famous verse. You may have heard it differently than I'm going to quote it. I'm going to quote it to you from the New International Version, so it might be a little different than you've heard it, but it's the same idea. And it says very simply from the wisdom, ancient wisdom of the, of the writer of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Let me read it again. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. You see, that's the idea that if we will reverence and awe God, it's the beginning of understanding, it's the beginning of knowledge. But if we don't have the proper awe and reverence of God, we don't have the proper perspective on things. And it's only when we reverence God that we are able to have the proper perspective. And he gives us that insight, that understanding that we need. As you probably recognize, many places in the Bible, they're written in parallel statements. And so this one is that way too. It says one statement, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then it says a bit the opposite, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And we don't want to be that way. And, and when the Bible talks about this concept of a fool, it's referring, particularly in this particular instance, it's referring to a morally deficient person or someone who does not awe and reverence God. Be, and the result of that is they don't live a life where they do what is right. They do what is wrong. They are deficient. They, they either don't understand or refuse to follow the, what God said is right. They turn it on his head. What's right, they say, is wrong, and what's wrong, they say, is right. And so they despise wisdom and instruction. And so we want to be the kind of people that fear the Lord. We want to be wise people, because the opposite of that despising wisdom and instruction is to embrace it by embracing the fear of the Lord. So think about your own life. Think about some concrete things, or maybe only one thing. I think I'd be happy if, if a lot of us identified one thing that we're going to do to cultivate this awe and reverence of the Lord. Now, it might be a small thing. It might be a large thing. It might be something as simple as every morning before you get caught up in the things of the day, take a minute, take 30 seconds, take whatever it takes for you and remind yourself that I'm going to live today in awe of God and I'm going to reverence him in my life. I'm going to intentionally and purposefully remember to keep him in front of my understanding and in front of my priorities, and I'm going to live in awe of him, and I'm going to reverence him. Now, that's something you could do every day. Now, maybe you could do this. 
years ago when people went to church, they entered the church and they recognized and they reminded each other that they needed to spend some time preparing themselves for worship, preparing themselves to encounter a holy God. In other words, they came into the, to the auditorium or the sanctuary, sometimes we call it worship centers, whatever the name, they came into the place where they were going to, to gather with the people of God and worship, and they deliberately took time to prepare themselves to encounter a holy God. They, they became reverent before God. They might pray, they might read some scripture, they might sit quietly and just let the, the things that had been on their mind all week just fade away because they decided to turn their, their, their heart, their mind in God's direction and put those other things aside and recognize that they will take care of themselves if I get it right with God. And they recognize this was their opportunity to encounter God, to find grace in their need, to find hope in their hopelessness, to find help when they didn't know where else to find it, because they would awe and reverence God, and they depended upon that time. Maybe that's something you need to do when you go to church, is take that time. Go a few minutes early and do that. Talk to your friends a few minutes less. They'll understand. Imagine what it would be like if we all began to say to our friends, you know, I, I need to go sit down because I've got to prepare to talk to God. Can you imagine if all of our churches started doing that? Well, this is the idea. And you may think of something else, but the idea is let's put God where he belongs. Let's put him on the throne where we awe and reverence him so that we have the right fear of God and our other fears just kind of fall away. I believe Michael Horton's right. And we'll pursue this maybe if we take some more time on this book. Um, but I think he's right that if we get God right, if we get the right fear of God, the right awe of God, the right reverence for God, then our lives will be built on a solid foundation and we won't be caught up in the fears around us. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. I really hope you can overcome your fears by focusing on God. And I really hope this has been helpful. And we're going to talk some more about some things that will help us have faith, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Next week, I hope you'll join us.